Reader's Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Happy Halloween, everyone. Oh, my gosh. I think that I have been doing book lights long enough now that this is finally a Monday has fallen on Halloween. So it's actually Halloween. Thanks for listening. If you're listening live or if you're listening later, you are in for such a huge treat because we have horror grandmaster, New York Times bestseller, Douglas Clegg on with us today. It's kind of a tradition now that he's always my final Halloween horror person. And we have so much fun talking about spooky things. So I'm glad you guys have tuned in. We'll definitely get you in the mood. And if you haven't read Doug Clegg yet, you are in for a treat and definitely grab a book off Amazon today and read it tonight for spooky times. It will definitely scare you. If you haven't read him yet, though, I'll go ahead and read his bio so you can get to know him. Douglas Clegg is a writer of imaginative dark fiction, including horror, gothic, fantasy, supernatural, and suspense thrillers. He has been a professional novelist since he signed his first book contract with Simon & Schuster in 1987. He considers much of his horror fiction as being on the surrealistic side of the equation, venturing into the logic of nightmare and dream. His books have been published worldwide and translated into various editions, and his short fiction has won the Bram Stoker Award, the International Horror Guild Award, and the Shocker Award, and has also been included in several year's best anthologies. I did put a link to his website, and you can sign up for his newsletter right there on the Blog Talk site if you're listening live or listening later. So definitely check that out. He has lots of cool things going. And are without any further delay, are you there, Doug? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Lisa. Thank you for having me again. I love this. I love the annual event. Hello? Me too. I look forward to it every oh. year. Are you there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you hear me okay? I feel like I can. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there were some well, Halloween well, ghoulies or something. I was hearing some kind of beeping, but now it's gone, so we're all good. Oh, <laughs> you may hear some beep. Oh, you may hear some beeps cuz I couldn't turn this off on my phone. What happens is we have like a doorbell camera and every time oh. someone passes by it, it dings on my phone and I can't get I can't I was trying to get rid of it before we got on the air. <laughs> and um and Raul right now is on a ladder right by the front doorbell hanging things for Halloween, so it's just kind of going off, so I apologize. Just pretend every oh, time no a, worries. Piece, a, a ghost <laughs> gets its wings. <laughs> yes, there we go. When you were saying that it, your phone beeps from the door camera, I immediately had all kinds of horror story ideas going. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you, these, it's funny, these, door, these doorbell camera things that you have. And, you know, it's nice because you can see, listen, you can see when someone's there, who's there so you don't have to get out of your chair. But if someone you don't want to see, you're like, oh, I'm going to pretend no one's home. Or, 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 you, or you can talk to them from, like, your easy chair upstairs. But the problem with it is that you always have a camera out, out there. So in the middle of the night when I can't sleep, I start looking out right. in the dark. Big mistake. Because <laughs> one night, one, okay, so one night, I see what looks like an alien form, all in white, bright white, like so white it was like crazy, like nuclear bomb white, like this white, white thing. And it's wriggling and it looks like, I'm like, what the hell is that? Pardon my language. So what the heck is that? And so I'm like, what is this? What is this? And, and it's crazy because it's like 2.30 in the morning. And I'm like, I think my mind's playing oh my tricks God. on me. 
Like, maybe I'm insane, but it was giant. Like, it was giant. It was on the front porch. And so then, you know, that night I'm like, I'm crazy. This can't be that something big. Maybe a kid has a toy that they let out in the neighbor. I don't know what it is. But it was it had, like, several yes. legs, and it was crazy. Well, what it was was there was a spider oh very gosh. close to the doorbell. There was a spider so close to the doorbell <laughs> camera. And the light. Like he was yeah, an alien. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it looked giant on the screen. And all I see is the beginning of a garden. So it looks like it's in the garden and it's giant. And oh then I think God. I'm crazy because I have to admit the one area where I'm going, I'm a little craziest. And this, since I was young, this would happen is maybe other people do this too, because I never discuss it. But it's one of those things where if I am up in the middle of the night, no one else is up or the, it's totally silent. And the whole block, even when I was a kid, the whole block is like dark out. And if I look out the window or if I get a sense of something in the house, I start to go into those crazy things where I'm like, someone's broken into the house. And in my head, I suddenly have a hand puppet on them and they're going to use the puppet to kill us. Like when I was a kid. And I was like, where does my mind go with this? Like, even then I'd be like, I know this is crazy, but I'm thinking this. And it's not true, but it could be true. And then sometimes I'd be like, I can't go to sleep now. I would just be up all night. Wait, I'm going to wait for the sun to rise. <laughs> yes, yes. I've been there. And, you know, I think most people who enjoy spooky things, which is so funny, are the people who spook themselves out all the time. Um, oh, yeah. I remember after I saw Paranormal Activity, the very first movie, that was so terrifying. And the idea that you could have cameras in your house and catch someone on time lapse just standing watching you for hours. Oh, yeah. And, and oh, yeah. that part of the movie made me so uncomfortable that that night I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking someone's watching me. And then I thought, I just don't even want to know. I'm never going to open my eyes because if they are there, I don't want to know. <laughs> I laid there for yeah, hours I, I, with my eyes closed. <laughs> well, it's like, that trick you do with, it's like that trick you do as a kid where you get under the covers thinking the monster can't touch you if every part of you is under the covers. Right? Exactly. So you think that if exactly. my head's out, it can get me. But if I cover myself head to toe and hold it around me, they're never going to find me. <laughs> That's right. Shield. That Your shields are up. Yeah. It's, it's like a universal <laughs> thing with kids where I don't know where they get that idea from that they're safe in that way. But um, yes. meanwhile, you know, someone coming in to kill somebody is going to be like, oh, how good, the kid's wrapped up for me. To go. To, to yeah. go, kid. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. a <laughs> to go, kid, yes. So, yes. so um, Apparently yeah, it's, our, it's the, our only defense is to cover up. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's that irrational thing where, it, to me, this is, the, and I'm sure it is to you and, and others, which is, it's a fascinating thing about the dark. Because to some extent, when you're in the dark, you're inside your mind. Right? Because mm -hmm. that's what it's like when you close your eyes and you go into dreams. When you're in mostly dark or almost total darkness, it's as if you're inside your mind and you're not out in the world. And therefore, that's why, where I think the mind can play tricks. Or maybe they're not tricks. Maybe For sure. Are ghosts. I mean, I, I completely am on the <laughs> side of, I think I had a ghost experience once. It could have been something else. And I don't want to believe in things that, that seem irrational, but in fact, I know that life is irrational at times. So clearly there can be yes. these things. And so I, I'm on the side of they could be. I'm not totally on the fence because I'm pretty sure I had an experience with a ghost. Nothing big, nothing dramatic. Just it was confirmed by someone, who my mother actually, who I hadn't even spoken to about it. And like eight months later, she mentions this thing. And I go, I've seen that too. So, so it, it was very minor, but it made me think, okay, there is something to, I don't know if they're spirits of people, if they're tape recordings of people, I don't know what it is, some, some, something. Right. Um, but there is that right. thing at night where I do, I do think you go inside your mind if you're up at night much more than you do during the daytime.
Right. For sure. And I think that our imaginations can run a lot more wild at night because we can't see completely. You know, it's harder to do that during the day. (laughs) Although sometimes it does happen during the day. So clearly clearly it can happen during daylight too. (laughs) And, and, um, and the weird thing about daylight is you, you also feel like, Oh, now it's real. Like at night you can always go, I think I'm imagining this because of shadow and other things. But in the daylight, you're like, great, that really is a rattlesnake in a living room. So, yeah. Um, I tell you, sometimes, sometimes, you know, as I'm getting older, as opposed to when I was young and I would poo-poo things like, you know, Freud says this, ah, Freud, what did he know? But sometimes I think, you know, all those things that happened before the age of four, they just keep resonating through your life. You don't, you don't realize until, unless you have a memory, and I do have a good memory of the age of three to four and, and possibly something before that, which seems impossible, but someone in the family confirmed something I said, and I was like, well, I guess I had a good memory at two years old. But but those things and those fears or those encounters or those ob- observations and perceptions, you're, like you're building the world when you're that age, right? The world hasn't shown itself mm-hmm. what it is to you. You're building it based on sight, sound, taste, smell. You know, if someone scolds you, if someone doesn't scold you, you're, you're building your own sense of the world. And then around five, six, seven, as you get into school, the world starts building its deciding what it is for you. Like they decide what it is, right? Because they've experienced yeah. it and they're deciding. But there is something to that before a certain age, before the age of four or whatever, there's a lot of both fears, hopes, ideas that come that honestly, many of them have stuck with me over the years. And I'm, I'm not going to mention my age. I'm, I'm a gentleman of a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> in, in gay years, I'm like 150. <laughs> so, but you know um, what? It's just a number. <laughs> it's only a yeah, number. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's, I know it's a revolution of the earth. It's not, it doesn't mean anything to anyone else, but everyone, but me, it means everything to everyone else. when it's about me, but when it's me looking at me, I'm like, no, it's just, I'm the same person I was when I was like 11. Just, I think I'm smarter and I can control, mm-hmm. but I, I can have a Snickers. I can have a Snickers bar in the middle of the day. That's the big thing with adulthood. That is, that, I, that's the only so. good thing about adulthood. <laughs> yeah. So, what else is going what's going on with you guys at Halloween? Do you guys do up the house? What do you do? Yes, I do. And but I was telling people cuz somebody was going, you know, you have Halloween at your house all the time. And I said, "Well, that's true, but I bring out the special Halloween stuff for Halloween. But I do have like my headless horseman is out all year and I have oh my, my Halloween oh tree." Oh my god, that's oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. Right, right. He's stately on top of my bookcase, right in the front room. So everyone comes in and goes, huh. Oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. <laughs> but, and and I do have my Halloween tree because Ray Bradbury, and it's right next right. to my writing desk, and that's up all year. Um, so I – I have a lot of oh, and I'm looking at my little my little note board hanging on the wall is shaped like a coffin. Um, so I do have a lot of <laughs> Halloween that's out all year round. But but for ha- actual Halloween, I bring out my light up things, and I do still have this gross zombie hand that I don't even remember where I got it, but it really does look like a real hand, and I like painted the fingernails black and and oh my god, my son hated that zombie hand his whole life. I'm pretty sure that I traumatized him on accident, but I used to put the zombie hand in different spots in the house during Halloween. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my that's would, that's like I, your, it's like your elf on the shelf. Uh-huh. It's, it's exactly. Like it's my shelf, zombie right? hand. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. But oh I remember gosh. one year I, I put it in the bathroom and all of a sudden my son comes shooting out of the bathroom and, and screaming. And I'm like, what's the matter? And he goes, he goes, that hand's on the toilet. I'm never going in there again. Oh, he was very upset. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but yeah my so mother, I my mother, the zombie hands. So my, my mother didn't know how much she traumatized me as a child when, so when I was a little kid, when I was about five, six, I liked to take long hot showers. I just liked them. And so I would use up all the hot water. I'd get up relatively early. I'd get up, my dad would get up early, so I'd get up around the same time he did. I'd go take this long hot shower. And I guess they noticed that it was cold water after that for everyone else in the house. So uh, <laughs> my mother and father both said, oh, you need to only be in the shower a few minutes. I was like, why? And they said, well, because if you stay too long, the boy-eating spider comes out from behind it. And might come after you. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Oh, no. So to them, they thought it was cute and funny, and I took shorter showers after <laughs> right. that. But what they didn't know was I had nightmare after nightmare after nightmare. of the. And by the way, <laughs> not for nothing, I mean, Stephen King may have had this clown thing, whatever, spider clown thing, but let me tell you, um, my spider, when I, in, oh, I don't want to say the year, well, I might as well, in like 19, I don't know, 62, 63, that spider looked like, had a clown face in the middle of it, and then all the legs. In my head, the oh my was so resonant in horror. And the thing is, I would, I would, I was terrified. And I didn't mention it because I also knew it was irrational. That I knew that it, I, you know, you kind of know it doesn't exist, but you're worried that it might exist, and then your imagination goes wild. <laughs> and I put it in my first book. I had it in my novel, Goat Dance, because it was that profound to me. My mother read the book and said, oh, "I wish I hadn't done that." She said, "I didn't realize how traumatic that was for you." And I said, "Oh yeah, <laughs> it was. It, it solved the shower issue, but it was traumatic for me. I just didn't talk about it because I thought everyone knew about it, and if I talked about it, it might find me as a kid. Right, right. It would know so, you knew, and then you would have to die. And my mother's not the only one. The babysitter also said that my brothers caught on to that, and they would tease me about it. I don't remember that part of it. And the, the woman who was my babysitter, who was actually my godparents' daughters, one of the daughters, years later, again, years later, probably eight years ago, said to me, you know, I always felt bad that I didn't stop them from doing that, but it was so funny, your reaction. You were so scared. And I go, yeah. <laughs> I was terrified. <laughs> oh, oh, dang. I was but six, you know I what? It gave you a lifelong occupation. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so don't you ever wonder, though, boy, if those things hadn't happened, like, maybe I would have been a happy CPA. <laughs> right, right. Maybe I just would have been I an would- accountant. A postman. Or a lawyer who <laughs> made great money and, you know, maybe. That would be nice. Yeah. I don't know what. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, those things, early childhood is so, it's so important. And, by the way, I, don't, I also don't regret it. I don't, I don't blame my parents. I know, I know rationally what they were doing is they were trying to do a fun way of, for me to want to get out of the shower. And they couldn't think of a positive right. way. They had to go through the dark thing. But they didn't realize how my mind worked. And that was what they didn't know mm-hmm. about me was my mind already worked in those directions. So, um, right. That was one of those weird things. They didn't realize how creative you were. But yeah, but I do think a lot of what's great about Halloween, about the horror genre and movies and TV and whatever, people who don't understand it, I don't think they really understand three things. One, where the fun is. Two, where the intelligence is. Because even in some of the, I I hate to say this this way because it sounds like I'm slamming them, but what, what, what would be considered stupid horror movies or stupid horror novels, they're not. There's an intelligence to those right. and what the intelligence is. It's going for that place inside someone where they need that experience to 
uh, sort of expiate or get get some something out of them to look at it on the page or watch it in a movie and be distant from it. So when they have those thoughts in their minds, they can say, "Oh, it's like a movie." Oh, it's like I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. I have something happens like, "Well, this is so much like a movie. I just need to enjoy the nightmare." Right. Right. <laughs> so so I think there's so much. Yeah. There's so and and there's a third reason, and simply that um, besides the fun part. I actually think there's a human nature. You know, the the horror often is an embodiment, an an extreme of something that reflects human nature. Mm -hmm. It's not as, uh, we don't all experience that extreme, but it's out there. And and it's not that it's some clown in the sewers that is from outer space or whatever. Oh, I shouldn't spoil it. But but there's some clown in the sewers. (laughs) It's old enough. It's okay. (laughs) I I hope so. But but that it's, it's actually, there's an aspect of life where it's dangerous. And sometimes it's dangerous in a death way, but often it's just dangerous in a psychic way, like a psyche way, like where psychologically you may be damaged by someone who does not have your have good intentions towards you. Mm-hmm. And I think horror also has that. It's, it's sort of a, a proving ground so people can sort of play out scenarios of um, how to get through life with difficult people even. Right. So I, I think horror and, is an amazing and- thing. Yeah, I was going to say I I had um, uh, Kelly Florence on earlier this month because she had a new science of witchcraft and we were talking about she has a horror podcast and she's her horror podcast is fantastic talking about different books and TV and media and that kind of thing and we were talking about why we would be drawn to horror and we both agreed that it is a great way to experience that thrill of being frightened in a safe atmosphere because you have all this range of emotions and every other emotion you can experience in real life and it won't actually hurt you, (laughs) you know, but that, that jolt of adrenaline of being frightened, you don't want that in real life. So horror can bring that to you in a safe environment. So I thought that was a really nice way to, I wouldn't be surprised if people who are into horror fiction or horror movies or games, I guess, video games too, or whatever they call them now, computer games, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they also, in dire situations in regular life, are a little calmer than the person next to them. Because they mm-hmm. have been vicariously dealing with things Im- Im- imaginatively, through the fiction, through the games, whatever, so that when they encounter it, they may think, okay, this isn't so bad. Whatever this is, it can be gotten through. I can think clearly. Because that's really the goal in a terrific situation is to try to think clearly, to focus, to make sure that you're not just panic or um, uh, dysfunction during a a time when you really need to function. And I wouldn't be surprised. I doubt that could be tested, and it's probably not true for everybody, but I do know with me, for instance, my fears are there, but they've greatly lessened in intensity over the years. And part of that, I think, is a lifetime of really reading, writing, and uh, enjoying horror fiction, horror stories. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, good I agree. The other side is they're just fun. They're just fun. I mean, they're, 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 you know, horror stories saved me when I was a kid in basketball camp in seventh grade where I was in North <laughs> I was sent to a play. I, I was sent to, like, I was conscripted, but I was sent to a really good basketball camp, by the way. It probably is one of the best, at least on the East Coast, or it was at the time. 
was called uh, the Wildcat Basketball Camp, which was on Davidson College. And we had amazing coaches. We had professional players. We had college players. We had all these amazing coaches. And there were kids from, I want to say, second grade up through high school now or maybe ninth grade. I don't remember. I don't think it went higher than ninth grade. And, um, but I was not, I, I loved basketball before I went, but when I came back, I didn't like basketball anymore. So, but I went and cause it was too like, no, these kids were going to be pros. Like I was playing for fun. Right. And the kids I was playing right. with were people who, since they were seven, were going for those big college scholarships. They wanted a pro career in this. And I wasn't one of them, but right. we, we had to take our laundry to a woman on campus, you know, cause we had gym clothes. We had to drop it off every day at lunchtime and then pick it up after lunch or pick it up like three o'clock in the afternoon or something. There's some break later that we could pick up our laundry. And I would go to her and instead of doing lunch, I often skip lunch those days, even though I shouldn't have since I was exercising more than I ever have in my life. And so I would <laughs> drop off the laundry and, and I, she'd say, what's wrong? And I said, Oh, you know, I don't really, I, I need, I need something else to do like to read. She said, Oh, you like to read. And she had a suitcase full of horror paperbacks. And she said, you can take the suitcase ah. back to your dorm room and read it. And when you finish them, um, you don't have to return them if you don't want to, but you can return them or you can just take them home and pass them to somebody else. So what she gave me was a suitcase full of um, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Tales of Mystery and Suspense, which the mystery writers used to do this, this whole series every year. Like, it must have been Mysteries of the Year. They were, they were amazing. They were kind of horrific back then. And then, um, and then all these H.P. Lovecraft, which I'd never seen, and so to me, they, um, I just melted into that. I, every chance I was, every time I wasn't playing basketball or practicing, I would be in that room reading horror stories. And it saved me in a camp where I wasn't really a, I wasn't a jock. I was just a guy who liked basketball. Right. I love so, that. And please. it probably gave you that passion, you know, for, for that would carry on through your whole life. It, it added to it. I, want, I do want to add my mother was my mother was significant, and it's not because of the trauma of the boy-eating spider, but because she also <laughs> would read those great, you know, those great classic dark poems, which I think a lot of kids in my generation heard or read because uh, they were in a lot of collections. Like, you know, The Highwaymen, um, mm-hmm. uh, some of these, uh, a lot of poems. The Raven. My mother read me a lot of yeah. poems. Raven, um, Annabelle Lee, which I can recite from heart because – I, she read it, I read it so much, and then in college when I had a little bit of a study of American Lit among my classical British Lit studies, um, you know, we re-read re- it, re-studied his poetry. And so, but my mother was a big influence on loving the dark side of stories. Uh, I remember thinking, um, you know, the poem that's also a song, which is uh, Molly Malone, you know, wheel to wheelbarrow, mm-hmm. the streets brought in there. I thought that was a scary story. I think she, oh. she died in the end or something. Like, I feel like, something, I think like so, it, yeah. sounded, it sounded desolate and sad and um, whatever. And so as a result, it, became, it was a very a beautiful, like almost to the point of tears when I was a kid, when she read it. And the same thing with the highwayman. I was at the point of tears and I was like five years old or six years old. Uh, good tears, like wow. good tears. Cause it's a, it's an right. emotional story. And so the, she definitely, uh, with Poe brought me in a little bit. And that's when I started discovering as a child, um, you know, I'd go to fiction that had the edge to it, children's fiction mainly, but the edge to it. Right. right. What was your first horror? Well, what was your first horror experience with books or, or movies? 
you know, I I try to remember back, and I am pretty sure that it was Stephen King. I'm pretty sure it was The Shining and that I read it way before I should have. But my mom was a voracious reader. Oh, my gosh. My mom read always had a book in her hand her whole life. And um, so she never she never put a limit on, you know, what I was allowed to read if I could comprehend it. I could read it and um the shining i remember was <laughs> was something and it was so scary that i would read some pages and then i would set it aside for a few days and then i and then i couldn't help it i would pick it back up oh, again that is a and scary book. more pages yeah. that's a very scary book yeah oh my gosh and but the ending of it i mean the the original movie for me just completely ruined it because what I took away from the ending of that was in the last moments, the dad won, you know, and he sacrificed himself to save his family and, and he beat the hotel just for a moment, you know, and, and for me, it was such a redemptive story that I, I loved it. And then I started reading Stephen King Poe, um, Dean Koontz. Oh my gosh, I used to love John Saul. Oh, terrified oh, yeah, me, but guy. I would read them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and and then I just I I was an adrenaline junkie, even. I just you know, please scare me. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> and then when I started writing, mur- I did the same thing. Yeah, I think with a good, just like with a good murder mystery, by the way, part of it, though, is not just the adrenaline junkiness. I just think it's, it's the excitement that you want to turn the page. And that's a hard thing with any yes. book. Some, some novels are beautifully written, and I love them, but it can be hard to turn the page because there's no compelling force. You know, right. in, a horror, in a good right. horror story or a good mystery, a good murder story, basically, good thriller, it's that turning the page there's an absolute thrill in doing that because you're no longer reading. You're mm-hmm. now just inside that story. And that to me is, a, is an art. And you is have a real to know art. what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, knowing what happens, finding out what happens, finding the mystery to stuff. And in good horror movies, I've noticed that I love anyway, the ones I love, some of them fail at the end. But what they do is if they keep that mystery right. going and the suspense going, it, you enjoy it even if you don't enjoy it, even if the ending is a little bit of a letdown. Um, mm-hmm. So that experience right. of, of be, being in that, it's, it's a wonderful part. So um, uh, anyway, you know, sorry to go off on that, all those tangents, but the love of horror is something that's hard to explain. People ask about it all the time, right? They'll say, why horror? Why mm-hmm. do you like horror fiction? Sure. Why, do you like, why do you write that? Yep. My mother, her entire life, my mother would be like, why are you writing this? Is it because when you were 12? And I go, no, 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 <laughs> no, no. It's, it's your, and I would be like, no, it's your boy eating spider issue that did it. <laughs> Yes, yes. Here, Mom, Mom. here's some more guilt for you. Here's some more guilt for you on the way out. So, um, no, but she she really was like, why why this? And I was like, because I just love it. I want to do what I love. Right? You want to do what you love if you can in life. Everybody wants to do what they love. Mm -hmm. I don't always do what I want, meaning, like, I I want to be a lottery winner. (laughs) I want to go, ooh, I need lots of money. But what I love is these dark stories, and if they're well, and if a writer is good, um, and by by good, I only mean gets me to the end of that book or that the end of that story. If they get me to the end of the story, they're a good writer. And so um, right. I really love that. And that's why also, by the way, back to my mother, that's also why I love horror poetry or poetry, dark poetry or dark tinged poetry, um, which mm-hmm. is going to segue into my reading a poem for you if there's time. I don't know if there's time. Yes. No, let's totally oh, okay. do it. I've been waiting for the Halloween poem all day. <laughs> 
So this poem uh, I wrote a few years ago, and it's in my collection, The Poisoner's Garden and Others. And it's called On All Hallows' Eve. Uh, If my reading's bad, I I apologize if I stammer at any point in this. It's On All Hallows' Eve. In villages dark, when spies the night moon, on All Hallows' Eve, the witches festoon dim trees with bright lanterns and with artful resolve beat drums to a mystery no one can solve. Riding moonlight and broomstick, cars, bikes, even more ways. On All Hallows' Eve, they abandon their doorways and race to a meadow at the deep forest clearing where the, where the raucous wild music is just beyond hearing. You may find yourself floating, much to your surprise, on All Hallows' Eve, out window towards skies. You sat down in the midst of the witches bewitching while they dance in a trance full of twisting and twitching. Here, drink golden mead and eat sweet cakes unfrosted on All Hallows' Eve while your fears are accosted, but the faces unmasked are the ones from your childhood as they spin in a circle amongst the thick wildwood. As you drink and you sup, you may laugh with such violence that you meet your true love in a moment of silence, where the night seems a year while a year wanders aimless. On All Hallows' Eve, your behavior is shameless. After sun breaches treetops when night's all but dead, after All Hallows' Eve, you awake in your bed. In the mirror's reflection, you're, you find age in your glance, no longer those bright eyes from before the night's dance. Wary neighbors will point and warn young ones to heed. On All Hallows' Eve, you must not drink the mead. Neither dance in the meadow, nor love at such cost, or you'll end up like this one, all gray-haired and lost. But ignore them and speak of those intrinsic riches on All Hallows' Eve when you danced with the witches. The end. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I wish I had applause sound effect, but that was fantastic. Uh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, no, thank you, because, you know, I rarely get to read my poetry out loud. And I also, I love writing poetry. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a poet on some levels, but I write poetry. So, um, so it was nice to have a chance to read it. So thank you. You're welcome. I have to tell you that um, Ray Bradbury used to say the exact same thing. I'm not a poet, but I love writing poetry. And when you were reading that, what popped in my head was something wicked this way comes. That was what that reminded me of. Yeah, it it had the exact same mood. And, and, you know, be careful what you wish for and who you're talking to. And that was that was great. Oh, thank you. Well, there's many more in the <laughs> Thanks collection, for sharing the Poisoner's it. Garden and others, available at most bookstores and, and in paperback, hardcover, and ebook. All right. Everyone, go grab it for your Halloween. How many poems are in it? Uh, a lot. Um, uh, okay. For poetry, poetry. No, hang on a second. I have it, and I have a few more horror poems in it, but um, they're, they're a little too long to read. And the Poisoner's Garden is a really disturbing little dark poem. Um, it's funny, I don't know. How many do I have? I think I must have it on the... Oh, 22 poems. Oh, nice. Yeah, so you yeah, guys be, would have... You could read a poem a day, like a countdown to Halloween. Oh, you know what? That's a wonderful idea next year. So, Next um, year. <laughs> Although I do hit, I do hit other holidays like Lupercalia, which everyone should celebrate. Valentine's Day, the Ides of March, um, Winter Solstice. I do hit some other calendar day. Oh, and Christmas with the Christmas Smite. 
So I do have some other holidays, as well as non-holiday poems. I have an autobiographical poem of what it's like to be gay and young and in college called Swimming in Underwear. It's not dirty, I don't think. And then um, (laughs) uh, then, uh, just various, I mean, I'll just, the titles I love, because Toast to the Damned, um, Mm -hmm. Song of Lupercalia, the Christmas You have to tell me what that holiday is. I've never heard of it. Oh, Lupercalia? It's an old Roman. It's yeah. an old Roman tradition in February. It's essentially where uh, Valentine's Day inter- intersects with what, you know, it's, it's basically the Valentine's Day of ancient Rome. Young people, I assume okay. it was mainly young, would have these strips of wolf skin, basically, and they, they would whip each, they go run naked through the streets. Young men and boys, and young, young men and women, I don't know how young we're talking, but I think young men and women mean of age for Rome, whatever that meant. And whipping each other, running through the streets, and there's a big festivities, and I don't know how long it lasted, but um, Lupercalia, meaning it's the wolf looper, loop, wolf. Uh, it's oh, I see. It's w- wolf festival, and they would have it in February. I don't remember the beginning date, but I'm pretty sure Valentine's Day is sort of coming out of it, which means the nicer version of that, which is love and candy and things like that. Um, so anyway, so it's basically, a, a, but the poem is basically to encourage people to uh, try Lupercalia. I'm just going to read one line from it just because Okay. it has a certain rhyme, rhyming scheme that's adorable in my opinion. And so this is just the first paragraph. When cute little slogans and heart-shaped confections no longer hold sway over lovers' affections, when Valentine's Day without fail starts to fail you, trade candy for nine tails and join Lupercalia. It goes on from there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm in. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, I, I, I do love poetry. I mean, obviously, I've mainly re- written stories and novels, but I do, I've written a few screenplays. I do love writing poetry, and I think that. Poetry is one of those things where if I don't write it, I, I, I don't write other things as much either. There's something in it. Like I need to get some psychological thing out on the page, some, something fun maybe. A lot of my poetry is just kind of for fun or taking an aspect of life into absurdity with a poem. And then some of it's serious, but basically there's something in me. A, a psychological hunger is a big thing I think in life, which is I have this hunger to express something, but I can't do it in the story, so I'm going to write a poem. Then I can write the story I need to write. Um, oh, okay. So I use it almost as a warm-up. Uh, it's it's a mm-hmm. love of words, and you know this. Like I don't, I don't. Is this true for you? Is this true for all writers? Do you wordplay is one thing. I think most writers love wordplay, but I, I like the mm-hmm. I like making a game of anything, whether it's a, writing a story or whether it's a writing a poem. I want it to be like a puzzle, even for myself, so that when you get to the end, you feel like you've solved something that you needed to solve, maybe emotionally, psychologically, in writing. That's yes, and I think that's why that, but I think that's why writing prompts work because it makes the writing like a game. How can I work in? Oh, there you go. You're the right. Rand McNally nap, map, you know, and then you're like, okay, here's my story, and somewhere I'm going to stick in a Rand McNally map, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, that is a good point because when you make a game of something, first of all, it never feels like work. Well, you know, it's right. just, when I was telling you before I came on, which was I'm, I'm, I'm balancing the phone with a lamp with a book that I'm reading from for the poetry, <laughs> and if it all fell apart. But in a weird way, by doing that, it distracted me from any anxiety I might have of, of reading the poem because I'm focused mm-hmm. on these other things as well. And so I think that might be right. why what you're describing works well. And you're absolutely right. And sometimes a limitation 
which is what I don't do writing prompts per se in terms of this, but a limitation on what you're going into to write allows you to write it. Like I, I will, mm-hmm. I will, I will only, I will put a, I had one story, a novella where I'm like, there was a woman I knew who in the forties, this is real. Um, she was, she sadly, she died a few years ago. She was in the French resistance. And then she was in work for NATO in Italy when the reconstruction or whatever went on. And one thing she did was, she liked to go to the zoo and the head of the zoo said, well, you'd like to come over here. Uh, we have a cheetah that came from someone's private home that we, the owners are no longer around. And we want the cheetah needs walking. It's so domesticated. It needs to be walked. And so she would walk the cheetah and she looked like a countess. I mean, she had a picture from the forties of her with that cheetah. It had a diamond necklace around its neck. She had a diamond necklace around her neck. And I'm like, wow. I have to put a woman with a cheetah inside. An, and I did, I wrote a novella called, dinner with the cannibal sisters and one of the sisters has a cheetah living in the woods in new hampshire um a pet cheetah oh wow <laughs> so so i was like i, I want to put that cheetah in how do i do it and suddenly the story came to me and from there and it was done and so i do think creating that kind of like the one thing or which would have been a story prompting right that that's a version mm-hmm. of the story yeah prompt. Yeah, for um, sure. And sometimes that happens when you're out in life and you see something weird, like in the grocery store, someone has oh, yeah. 20 pineapples in their cart and nothing else. You can't help oh, yeah. but write a story. <laughs> you know? yeah, by the way, did you actually see that? Actually, I did see that once at a Trader Joe's and I was like, you need to write a story. What? You need to write that story. I know, because, right? By the way, that's, that's a great idea within the story. I did a, um, or I'm working on something, but when I was sitting down with it, I remembered something. We were in a, a, a very exclusive, not, it's not exclusive. For us, it's exclusive because we're like, you know, middle class folk going in. But there's this fancy antique salvage place in um, Newport, Rhode Island. And everything's too expensive. But every now and then you can find something really cheap if you dig. Like, you go, oh, there's this thing I'm looking for, and it's under $100, which is great. Because usually they had things that were like $45,000 for this. And I'm like, yeah, it's not our thing. But you <laughs> go in there, and we're looking for a specific stained glass piece because Raul restores old stained glass. And the guy's dealing with us. And then suddenly a woman sweeps in, very elegant, obviously moneyed. And she comes in and she says to him, she, oh, she says, excuse me a second. She turns to the clerk and says, I just bought a cottage in the south of France and I need to furnish it with some things here. And, of course, we never saw that oh clerk gosh. again. I was like, <laughs> and we were like, Jesus, well, you know, we're not going to get any help here because we're not spending that kind of money. And, well, you know, but, but right. and Raul said, I don't even, Raul said, I don't even think she has a house in the south of France. She's saying that because she knows she's going to get all the attention. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is an interesting thing. And suddenly I had this story idea that I've been writing where the instigation for what the main characters do is they're in a store talking to a clerk and a woman comes in and says, I, I just bought a cottage in France and I need some help furnishing it. And that makes the people who are not rich sitting there going, I want to have that life. How do I get that life? She has a right. life I have. And so it became a, the basis of a story. So. So it is interesting how those little things out in the wild, as they say, whether it's the grocery store or mm-hmm. a salvage shop or an antique store, every now and then there's those moments where you go, this is jarring. And that jarring moment is a really good way to start a story or have a story prompt. You're right. Definitely. I love the pineapples, though. Definitely. Because you, you, yeah. you can oh, go yeah. anywhere whole with a whole cart of pineapples, right? I'm, I'm like, <laughs> what do you do with that many pineapples? <laughs> but, of course, my dark mind went to cannibalism, so I, I just... <laughs> oh, right. 
you know, because they go really well with human flesh. <laughs> yes. What does pineapple go really well with? Well, it's got those acids in it, which helps break break down the flesh a little when you marinate. <laughs> right, so it'll be tender. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, sadly, I was going to some weird kinky well, thing. I go, whoa, what? <laughs> well, that's Why? true. But, yeah, you could go that way be, too. <laughs> you know, it could be a thousand-person pina colada party. You just never know. <laughs> it could be. You never know when you're going to need or that what? many pina coladas. <laughs> what if she's a pineapple hoarder and you go in the house? And you know how the hoarders have – we had some great hoarders here who I really liked. Um, but they had, like, stacks of the newspapers and, you know, dead squirrels and things like that. So what if it was just all pineapple? <laughs> and then part of the room's just rotten, and it just yeah, – exactly. You just keep bringing fermenting. in more. It's like, it's like that whole fermenting thing is going on. <laughs> oh, my, oh gosh, my gosh, that is a great moment. I mean, that could be the kind of story that ends up in The New Yorker, frankly. I mean, honestly – Right? Because that's one of those things where you just go, this is the, they can go odd literary, it can go horror, it can go murder mystery, it can go thriller, it probably could even go romance. Who knows? Probably. Yeah, who knows? Oh, oh my gosh. That is <laughs> well, funny. Before, before we go, I wanted to ask you, what are you working on now? What's next for you? So, uh, you know, in general, I've learned never, I mean, I'm going to tell you, but I, I generally stop now because I would start working on something, get distracted by something else that I'm working on. I have so many projects and, you know, honestly, my dream would be a publisher comes to me and says, Doug, I want one of your next 12 books because I have about 19 books. <laughs> then in you'd process. have to finish them. <laughs> I, they're mostly finished. I mean, the odd thing is, I mean, sometimes I question like, why am I not finished? I can write. I know exactly the ending. I know exactly writing. I know the surprises. I enjoy the book. Every time I reread these things, I go, I really love this. There's some weird thing that makes me not want to hit the trigger on these. But I'm also writing screenplays. And so I'm collaborating with someone now who is a really quite, I can't say, but quite quite a good director who is, I'm collaborating on on a new screenplay. And then also I just got, um, contacted by someone related to my novella purity which i happen to have a screenplay for and so there's various movie things going on my my trilogy the vampiricon has been under option and although not a lot is happening right now they have a plan there's a plan going on for developing it into a i think a television series so so there's a lot going on Ah. i'm on zoom call i am on zoom calls a lot with producers and directors i will say that which i kind of enjoy i kind of enjoy it more than work because you just sit there and get very creative and everyone kind of goes crazy and nobody solves. Well, people do solve things. They, they do all the solving. I'm just the writer. I'm just the guy who's like, let me bring up this wackadoodle idea. And they're like, oh, that's a great idea. So, so, um, so it's really fun. You're just the idea man. I mean, I think I told someone about today, actually. I said, this is sort of a perfect day because I'm talking to you. That's one. Mm-hmm. It's Halloween. That's another. Um, right now there's an actress of note reading one of my books because she's thinking of create a movie for herself around it. Um, there's a, oh. there's a director in director producer in New Zealand who is looking at a script of mine right now, interested in the story as it was before he thought knew there was a script. The, um, there's a director again, who I'm working with on a screenplay and there's a producer director team uh, with other producers and other group, a group with yet another project of mine. And then one of my books, There Before Dark, which I did not write the script for, that's still making the round. So I think today, this is the perfect day. Now, the outcome of all those things may be it didn't work. 
But today it's not that day. Today it's Halloween. It's but you. today it's, that it's Halloween. It's perfect. Yeah. Anything's possible. <laughs> Anything's possible and everything's possible. So, so to me, I'll take the perfect day knowing that maybe it'll be a rainy day a few days down the road. <laughs> right. Well, I'm going to just throw this out, out there for you about your Vampyricon. I think it's time because Interview with the Vampire is out now, and it's fantastic. Oh, right. And Dracula Untold is in the top ten on Netflix right oh, now. That's right. And then there's right. that Dracula Daily Substack. Have you heard about that? Where they're emailing no. Dracula's oh, – it is fantastic, but there's a bunch of articles about it on the internet, but my nephews are actually in it and and talk about it on social media all the time. But basically, somebody got the genius idea to make a substack, which is the automatic emailing thing, that sends out emails of the diary entries from Bram Stoker on those actual days. Oh, that's genius. So, isn't it genius? Yeah. So you, so maybe today is a Jonathan Harker letter, and then there's a letter, you know, and, and yeah, so there, <laughs> you get an email, and so people, a whole other generation is discovering Bram Stoker's Dracula when they get the, <laughs> they get the letters and the diary entries on the day. So really that interesting. <laughs> so, I, so I have a very quick before we go, is that with Dracula, which I've read many times, What's fascinating to me, what always appears because of the letters, the letter writing, is that mm-hmm. there's a very – someone may argue with this and say, no, 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 it's all, it's all you know, men doing men things. That story, that book, reads to me as if it's showing these men as all weak. And that the women, even though they often get subsumed, um, I never – I get them confused because between the book and one of the movies, they, they switched Mina for Lucy. But I think it's – one of them gets turned into the vampire verse. I think Lucy does, but I'm not sure because the Coppola movie or one of them switched the names between Mina and Lucy as to what happened. But regardless, the women are writing these letters and they're kind of saying what's going on or what they think is going on. The men are writing letters where it's as if they're oblivious to everything. Um, Only Jonathan Harker (laughs) once he has the experience. But the other men, these other men, remember there's the the, the sort of, I want to say he's like a cowboy character. I mean, he's like, there's, there's, I guess he's an American, there's American in the novel. American, right. And so, so, mm-hmm. so the so meanwhile, the, the woman upstairs is being sucked dry every night, and they're like, we think, she, you know, <laughs> they're like, someone's telling them, put garlic up, and they're like, no, we just think that it's this, this, and this. And it's kind of, I guess it's a satire. There's a sat- satiric aspect to Dracula as you read it that had to have been satiric at the time, which was these men writing about things in letters, and meanwhile, a life and death situation is going on upstairs. And that's right. I never quite see in the movie. <laughs> I, I never quite see played in the movie well. Um, and I also think Jonathan Harker, on some level, is sort of, in my opinion, sort of a satiric character in it, in the sense of how he sees things that are horrifying, and yet he really doesn't really do enough to to to, to figure something right. out. Where you just um, and so I really loved it. I mean, I I love that book, and I've read it backwards and forwards. It always feels like three novels to me. There's the letter novel. There's the Jonathan Harker novel at the castle when he's there. And then there's the final novel where, you know, there's like a train journey and there's these other things going on. And I really love that book. I can reread it a million times. Um, so that's yeah, great well, if you, doing that. Yeah, yeah. It's called Dracula Daily. 
and but it's not really daily it's whenever they come up but but anyway you can sign up online but if you look up dracula daily it, it's quite the thing but all the all the kids are doing it so <laughs> what's well, a good time so for I that think, also, I, I believe sorry go ahead well i was just going to no, say go so i think it's time for your vampiricon because vampires are coming back to life so to speak they never die they're in the air again, which is nice. And I and I have not yet seen the interview with the Vampire Series, but I hear from everyone it's fantastic. So I look forward to seeing so it. So fantastic. So fantastic. Oh and I really love that even though they changed the time period and they obviously changed the characters because Louis is a black man now, but the they managed to keep the plot points the same. So it it's really fantastic and some of the dialogue is right out of the book so it's just been it's done really well so it's time for your vamp- nice. vampire con <laughs> I'm, I'm glad so i'm glad someone took good care of it because that's a terrific yeah, novel and it's a terrific project to have to bring to the screen small screen big screen whatever so nice. yeah well listen i hope the vampire con has some kind of takeoff because i think it's fun i think that it's um a little naughty and a little dangerous in certain parts and I think there's some vision, visions in it regarding the underground cities that I think are would be wonderful to see on screen, I think. But we'll see. Yes, definitely. You, know, you, you don't always get yeah, well, <laughs> That's true. But I'm sending out Sometimes, good vibes. You know, and it's Halloween, so. <laughs> I know. So this is still the perfect day, right? Halloween today for me is a perfect day. Everything is perfect. Nothing's going to miss. And if things go amiss, it'll be tomorrow. All souls day, day of the right. dead. <laughs> That's right. Tomorrow will be That's the, right. But the for today, it's all the magic. <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, thanks so much for being here and celebrating Halloween with us and reading us a live reading of your poem. And this has well, been so you. fantastic. I hope you have a great Halloween. Elisa, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. We'll talk to you next year. <laughs> Agreed. Every year. Every year. Thanks for joining us on Book Life. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.